If you've got a Bible, I hope you have one in front of you, whether it's digital or paper, will you come over to 1 John at the end of your Bible? If you're not accustomed to navigating Scripture, you're coming to the very end, almost the very last of what we call the New Testament. I want to read six verses from 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 6. 1 John 2, 1 through 6. Now, I packed some things coming from Bloomington Normal down to Evansville, and one of the things I packed to make sure I brought with me was this vital question. This question's been in my heart all weekend. What does an effective and healthy church look like? If I could translate that, if I could edit that just ever so slightly, I would say it this way. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? I want to talk about that. What does that look like? I just got back from India a couple of weeks ago. I've lost a little track of when exactly I did get back to the States. Somewhere in the midst of my teaching there in India, I got in a conversation about something that Gandhi, maybe you recognize Muhammad Gandhi's name, Gandhi made this statement about those of us who are Jesus' followers. I actually wrote it in my Bible. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Ouch. Translated, if I could actually see a Christian, I'd become one. Well, John doesn't use the word Christian, but he does start this passage with a really beautiful, endearing uh, term that I love. Listen closely as I read 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and his truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him Truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So what does it mean? What does a healthy and effective church look like? Or as I'm editing this, what does a Christ follower look like? I'm going to do this rather quickly. I'm going to try to be as clear as an Indiana morning. Here's what he says. Here's his first answer. He says it means that I know who Jesus is. Verse 1, look at it again. It means I know who Jesus is. He's going to use two terms here that I want to talk about just for a second. He's going to call Jesus our advocate, and he's going to call him the righteous, maybe if you've got the New International Version there in front of you, it, it's translated this way, the righteous one. 
I want to talk about that just for a second. If we are wrong about Jesus, then we are wrong about everything. <laughs> if, if, if First Christian Church at Evansville doesn't squarely hold on to the person of Jesus Christ, nothing's right. Any healthy relationship, I don't know if you're in a healthy relationship with the person to your right or the person to your left, don't make eye contact just in case you're not. I would assume if you're dating or if you want to date, you know what I'm about to say. Or if you're in a marriage or you're about to get married, you know what I'm about to say. Healthy relationships take time. You, you, you actually ask questions of that other person. You, you spend time talking with that other person. You, you actually bend your ear toward that other person and you right? If you're in a healthy relationship. If you're not, you don't care. What John is implying here in verse 1 is that we care enough that we know Jesus. We've met Jesus. Let's talk about those two words. He says he's our advocate. What he means, we actually talked about this on the retreat. What he means is he uses a word that usually is only used of the Holy Spirit, but he applies it to Jesus. The word is paraclete. Jesus is our paraclete. Literally, we talked about this on retreat. It's a picture of of Jesus putting his arm around us and encouraging us. Actually, the word for advocate is a courtroom word. It's a word that implies Jesus is your defense attorney. Now, You can't recognize by how I look that I'm in front of you, but I'm an expert on this because I've watched a lot of law and order. I I know a lot about the legal system because I watch that show. And here's the thing that I know. I don't want a dud for a lawyer. I want a lawyer. If I want if I want the best lawyer that money can buy. And John uses that terminology. He uses that background to talk about Je- Jesus is our, he's our advocate. He's our lawyer. He's our defender in front of the court of God. He speaks on our behalf. I was reading this week just to get ready to come down here. I was reading about a guy I'd never heard of before. I'm a little ashamed of this. His name is Granville Sharp lived in the middle 18th century, last, early part of the 19th century. He was an, I, I didn't know this, he was an extraordinarily gifted musician, played multiple instruments. According to the story that I read, apparently had a beautiful baritone voice, was a Bible scholar actually, but what he was most known for, he was a lawyer in England who defended people who had been put into slavery. He was an abolitionist. He took one case on, listen to this, he took one case on and defended that slave for 18 years until that slave got his freedom. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who goes in front of the court and defends you year after year after. Do you know him? Have you met him? He's your advocate. Look at the second word, the word righteous, 
or the righteous one. I'll just be quick with that. What, what, what John is saying is that Jesus is the perfect one. No air, no fudge, no sin. Perfect. I like saying it this way. Jesus did the right thing in the right way at the right time every time. John says he is not only our advocate, he is the righteous one. He speaks on our behalf. Have you met him? You know him. I told the crowd earlier today, again, you can't tell this by how I look, but I coached basketball for a while, and I, uh, I said some things I shouldn't have said at times. Indiana folks tend to care about basketball. I suppose you care about it. I was coaching up at Lincoln Christian University. In those days when I was in seminary, we had a freshman team that had, a, had their own schedule. And so I coached those freshmen. We had our own uh, travel itinerary. The, our head coach, the guy who's a dear friend of mine still to this day, is Lynn Laughlin. Maybe some of you know. Lynn was the coach of the varsity, and I coached this freshman traveling team, and we were down playing another Christian school. I want to emphasize that. We were playing another Christian school down in the southern part of the state of Illinois, and we were in the middle. If I use this language, I assume I'm with people who understand this. We were, we were getting homered, and I said something about it. I couldn't keep my mouth shut. So a call is made on our end of the floor, and I got up from my seat. I I admit I walked out of the coach's box, and I walked over to the official, and I said, I'd like to have an explanation for that call. He said, Coach, sit down. I said, I'll sit. I'm getting mad right now. I said, I'll sit down when you can explain that to me. Sit down, Coach. I'm going to give you a technical. I said, I will not. I got a technical. Now, in Christian schools... This is probably true of all the schools that you know about. be true of Indiana, probably. When a technical foul takes place, everybody gets real quiet. They, at least they did there. there. You could have heard a pin drop. Up in the stands, Lynn Laughlin, my partner at the university in the, on the basketball program, takes, he's got a loud voice, he doesn't need to do this. He took his hands, cupped it around his mouth, and he screamed out these words. He said of me to the official, he's right, you know. And everybody started laughing and it kind of lightened the moment. Jesus cups his hands and puts them around his articulate, loving mouth. And he says on your behalf, if you know him, that person's right with me. Come back to my question. What does a healthy and effective church look like? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? It means I know who Jesus is. Liars don't know that, John says. Let's come to the, his, second, his second answer. It's in verse 2. Listen to how I frame this up. So what does a healthy and effective church look like? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? It means the second thing. It means I trust what Jesus did. I I put all of my marbles into what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Now, he uses an interesting phrase here, and I want you to notice this phrase. 
Notice around verse 2, he talks a lot about sin. But I wanted you to notice this phrase in verse 2, at least in my English Standard Version, it's translated this way, propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation for our sins. If you've got a new international version there on your phone or whatever you got in front of you, your translation says something to the effect that Jesus is our sacrifice of atonement. Now, Bible students battle this. They argue, we can argue about all kinds of things. Christians have the capacity to look a lot like the folks in Washington, D.C. We just argue about everything. And there are Christians, there are even some translators, maybe your translation gets rid of the word propitiation. Maybe your translation you have in front of you uses the word expiation. Now, you may say, who cares? Well, it's a big deal. Expiation is a word that means that Jesus wiped away sin. Now that's true. And the word propitiation that my translation has takes that and says, that's right. But it's more than that. Propitiation is actually the word that means that because of what Jesus did at the cross, God's righteous anger has been appeased. It's been pacified. Now God's not like me. He doesn't just lose it get ticked off and say some things he shouldn't say. God's anger is pure. It's why I like this translation. Because this translation acknowledges that God was angry at the rebellion of men and women. God took all of that sin, all of that righteous anger, and he, he actually literally put it on himself. When God put on flesh, he came in the person of Jesus Christ. I know we'll pass out the aspirin. That can be a sizable thing to get your mind around. What John is saying is, do I trust what Jesus did? In the back of my Bible, I keep the... Do you you know Psalm 23? Are you Bible memorizers? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know that old psalm? In the back of my Bible, I keep the revision of that. This is the upside down version of Psalm 23. This is the picture of someone who doesn't trust. Listen. The Lord is not my shepherd. I am in want. Rest evades me. I cannot resist the tyranny of the urgent. My energy is sapped. I am without direction on some aimless path Bring nothing but disorder to myself and to those around me, especially when I run through the dark valley of death. I am terror-filled, for I am alone. Your absence leaves me barren and inconsolable. I am famished and surrounded by vultures. I am an unwelcome burr in your saddle, dust kicked from a shoe. My cup is empty. Your love keeps missing me. Day after day, I will live alone in an empty apartment forever. Amen. So, do you have a top three list that identifies the people that you most do not trust? Top three list. Do you live in such a way that Jesus makes that list? (laughs) That you just decide, I don't trust Jesus. Healthy and effective churches, Christ followers, trust what Jesus 
did. Have you trusted him? Past tense. Have you said, because of what he did for you at the cross, 33 AD, we're going to celebrate this next week. We call it Easter Sunday. Have you completely taken your life and wrapped it around him and said, I'm all in, I trust. I trust in, we sang about it this morning. I trust in his righteousness, not mine. Jerry and Debbie Clark, Jerry Clark's oldest son, Matt, who Jerry mentioned a short while ago, we live about 45 minutes, 50 minutes apart from each other. Uh, Matt and our daughter Lindsay and little Preston and Maddie all live over in Champaign, and my wife and I live on the southeast side of Bloomington. It's about 45, 50 minutes from our garage to their garage, and so Matt and I talk a lot about preaching. We talk a lot about his ministry at First Christian Church in Champaign, and so I don't know how long it's been, a couple years, probably more intensely in the last year. We meet halfway. I-74 hooks our two communities to each other, and we'll drive to a little bitty town. It's, it's smaller than Mayberry. You got to think small here. It's a little place called Farmer City. I don't know why they attach the word city because it's not that at all. They got a little greasy spoon there. It's called Imo's. Matt and I will meet early, have breakfast. I highly recommend their breakfast. And we'll meet there and we'll bring our Bibles and we'll study whatever he's working on, whatever he's trying to figure out in Scripture and we'll shape a sermon around that. Well, here... A week or two ago, we were meeting, we had our breakfast, we had our Bibles open, uh, we were studying the passage that he was going to preach, and somewhere in the midst of that conversation, the whole idea of trusting what Jesus did for us came up. I don't remember why, but that topic surfaced, and he began to tell me of a story. I got to back up. He told me, maybe he's told it here, he told me a story of Preston, who at the time was two plus, maybe three years old. He he could walk and run. He was up on the stage, much like this one, three and a half, four feet high. He was up on the stage doing something, and he saw Matt. He saw his dad, and his eyes lit up. And when he saw his dad coming toward him, Preston just lost it. He, He became Superman. He decided that because his dad was running toward him, and listen now, because he could trust his dad, Preston, without even telling his father, started running and leaped off of the stage without announcement, leaps off of the stage and dives right into Matt. Matt said his heart, you know, was beating 100 miles an hour. Oh, God, help me not to drop this boy. Have you backed up in life and just with all of your energy, all of your zippity doodah, and made a leap right into Jesus' arms? If you could sit in the lap of Jesus for 60 seconds, what would you say to him? What does a healthy and effective church look like? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? John says in verse 1, it means I know who Jesus is. In verse 2, he says, it means I trust what Jesus did. And here's the third thing, and I'll just talk about this rather quickly. 
It means I obey what Jesus said. Now I'm going to underline four quick words. If you're a writer, if you circle things in your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to circle these four words. It means I obey what Jesus said. Now the, the opposite of that positively is I stop obeying me. I start obeying him. I die to me and I begin to live for him. Before I give you these four words in verses three through six, I have a little ditty in the back of my Bible. It's called a universal tea party. It always reminds me, it always reminds me of how self, I just made up a word, how self, S-E-L-F-E-D, how self our culture is. Little poem goes this way. I had a little tea party one afternoon at three. Twas very small, three guests in all. Just I, myself, and me. Myself ate up the sandwiches while I drank up the tea. Twas also I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me. Do you know anybody so absorbed? Jesus has just been elbowed out of their life. John uses four words to describe somebody who's in this intimate relationship with Jesus. He uses the word no. Look at that word. He actually uses it four times from verse 3 down through verse 6. It means it's not a Bible trivia sort of thing. There are a lot of people who know some things about Scripture and use it as a bazooka. They use it as a 357 magnum. They hurt people with what they know about Scripture. It's not that kind of knowing. It's intimate knowing. It's the kind of knowing that you can only get when you walk with Jesus for a long period of time. Do you know him? The second word he uses here is the word keep. Your translation may actually use the word obey. That's really a a bit more concrete. It's the idea of guarding something carefully. It, It carries the idea of keeping your eyes closely on Jesus. So know, keep, The third word he uses here, it's a big John word. John loves this word. He uses it back in his gospel. He uses it here in these letters. And then he uses it just to the right of this passage called the book of Revelation. He uses it there. It's the word abides. Do you see it down in verse 6? Whoever says he abides in him. It's the word word that means that you're intimately attached to him. It's this marvelous word picture of letting Jesus move into your life and set up house. When when people get married, they use that kind of vocabulary. They say, we got an apartment or we got a house and we we set up house. That's the picture. The last word, the fourth word that he uses that describes this thing I'm talking about, this life of obedience, is the word walk. At the very end, he uses it twice. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That means we start behaving like Jesus. We allow Jesus to be the lens through which we look at all of life. One of my old teachers, when I was in seminary, used to say it this way. When the center is correct, he meant Jesus. When the center is correct, the circumference is takes care of itself. I was, I can't date it, I was six, maybe, seven years old. I told the guys on the retreat this week, I'm from a large family, 
seven, seven kids in all, my father struggled deeply with what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. He was a prisoner of war and never quite made peace with all of that. I've often described him as a grenade with a pin pulled out. He's just volatile. And I don't remember what I had done. I don't even know if I did anything. My dad erupted and he yelled at me, got right in my face. He struck me and he said to me, you are a liar. Man, my little heart was just crushed. I ran out to the garage, started crying in the garage. Now, there's a partial truth in what my dad said. I didn't know that till I was 20 years old, and I accepted Jesus to be the Lord of my life, the boss of my life, when I was in military service. I am a liar, and can I say it not hurt you? So are you. But my heart was broken. I started thinking about Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer was my favorite character. I loved, I loved uh, Mark Twain's, Samuel Longhorn Clemens' story of Tom. Tom was a liar. His girlfriend, Becky Thatcher, was a liar. Muff Potter, the drunk, in that little community there in Missouri, he was a liar. Injun Joe was a liar. I say all that because here's the good news. I read these six verses and I come to this beautiful conclusion that Jesus alone is worth knowing, worth trusting, and worth obeying. So I got this question I want to ask you. It's an affectionate question. It's a kind question. It's a question from my heart to yours. When was the last time you fell in love with Jesus? Jesus.